Amen. Wonderful job, brothers and sisters. Appreciate it. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to Acts chapter 1 this morning. Acts chapter 1. I'm excited to be back with you this morning. We, uh, we were away last week, and we had a good time at the little church we went to, but the kids were eager to get back this morning, as were we as well. So this is a, a great day for us, and especially to be able to come and uh, participate in the Lord's Supper with you. It's also a good day today because LSU won yesterday, beat Bama, and uh, I might be offending half the room, I don't know, but... I don't really like Bam anyway, so it doesn't matter. So, uh, and then the Saints play today, so praise God. That's awesome. It's good to see the jerseys in here and uh, to anticipate that game as well. Acts chapter 1. Uh, this week, next week, and then the next, myself and Dr. Rice are going to do a short little series that's, uh, you could say it this way, sort of designed to be like this. Let's cast some vision for the interim process, not for the, the people up here preaching per se, but for the body of Christ here at First Baptist uh, here in New Orleans. What can we be doing right now? What can we be about right now? So Acts chapter 1, verse number 4, I'll pick up there. We'll read through verse number 11. Here's what the Word of God says to us this morning. And being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. For truly John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father God, we do pause again before you this day just to thank you for giving us life, to thank you, Father, for saving us as your dear children and giving us the high calling in Christ to now go with the gospel. And so, Father, we pray that for this sermon, the next and the next, the next three weeks, these next three sermons, that, Father, you'd use this to energize this body for you, for your kingdom. Lord, help us to be faithful to you in all things. And, God, would you accomplish in and through us what you seek to accomplish. We give ourselves to you to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you this question this morning. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I ask that question a lot, and I have a bit of a mantra that I say in response to that question. And I'm going to say it again and again and again. In fact, I often will say this in almost every sermon I ever preach. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Well, we could get real theoretical about that. We could theologize about that. We could philosophize about that. Let's not. Let's just answer it straight up and let's just say this, that a follower of Jesus Christ is someone who goes where he goes. A follower of Jesus Christ is someone who does what Jesus does. And a follower of Jesus Christ loves what he loves. Don't overthink it. It's that simple. A follower goes where he goes, a follower does what he does, and a follower loves what he loves. That, my dear brothers and sisters, 
is the vision I want to cast for us for this interim process. What can we be doing right now? We can be going as Christ goes. We can be doing as Christ does. And we can love the way that Christ loves. That's what we're going to do for this sermon and then the next two weeks. This week, I'll preach and focus primarily on the going part of that. Next week, I'll focus on the doing part of that. And then the third week, Dr. Rice will preach on the loving part of that. So let's jump in. I think this is a fantastic passage of Scripture for us to consider when we think about the going as Christ goes. And so today, I want to focus just predominantly on what does it look like to be a goer like Christ himself was a goer? What are we to be doing as goers following the example of Jesus Christ. I want to make four quick points here this morning, and then we'll be all done, off to the Saints game and other things that are going to happen today. Number one, I want you to see that as a goer, as we focus on this, we go as witnesses to His kingdom, not as imperial activists. I'll explain. We go, the primary function in our going is to bear witness of Christ the Redeemer, who is also King. We go as witnesses to that, we do not go as imperial activists. Now, what do I mean by that, that last part? Well, throughout the history of this world, we've had kings and monarchs. We've had governments that fought wars. We've had battles. We've had people trying to establish their kingdom, and they've fought very imperialistically. In other words, what they were most primarily concerned with is just ruling, defeating everybody, and ruling over everybody and establishing for themselves what could be theirs throughout the world. That's not really the business. At least it's not the business from the side of defeating, per se, over our enemies. This is the way that the disciples often thought about this. And while it's true that Christ himself is going to come and sit on a throne, there is so much more going on within his kingdom and his rule that the disciples were yet to learn. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 6. He'd come back to them. He's told them in verse 5 that the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's already spoken with them about that. John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. He's already talked to them about that. In verse 5, he reminds them that the Spirit's going to come again. Notice in verse 6, it almost reads as if the disciples changed the subject. He's telling them in verse 5, the Spirit of God's going to come upon you. You're going to be baptized with the Spirit, but they're uninterested in that. They're really not concerned with whatever the Spirit's going to do in their life, whatever the Spirit's going to do to them or through them. No, no, no. What they want to know about is the kingdom. And this raises a question. Throughout the Gospels, the disciples, when they heard about Jesus as the King, here is the Messiah. They were really excited and glad to hear that the King had come. Why? Because the Jews primarily were expecting and wanting a monarch to come and defeat the Romans and rule over them. Even John the Baptist struggles with this in a moment. John the Baptist, who Jesus says, the greatest of any person born of a woman. That's a very high compliment. John the Baptist preaches and proclaims and prepares the way of Christ. But very interestingly, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been arrested. And in just a few short chapters, he's going to have his head cut off and served on a platter to a belly dancer for all practical purposes. John the Baptist, knowing that he's about to die in Matthew chapter 11, sends his messengers to Jesus with a simple little question. Teacher, are you really the one 
Or should we be looking for another one? John the Baptist has a moment of doubt, but why? It's not that John hasn't heard about all the things that Jesus has been doing. John has a doubt because, if I can put it this way, things are not working out the way he expected them to work out. And this was stereotypical for the disciples. You see, when they thought about Jesus, what they thought is the the Messiah is going to come and defeat and crush the Romans who they despised and hated, and he is going to establish his people and his rule over everything. And that's what they wanted most. I'll put it to you this way. The disciples and the Jews, and even John the Baptist here in Matthew chapter 11, tended to view the coming kingdom of God through the lens of their enemies. In other words, they thought about their enemies, the people they didn't like, the people that had hurt them, and what they wanted God to do was come and defeat them and rule over them. In other words, they wanted God to defeat their enemies for them instead of wanting God, listen to this, to redeem their enemies. What they're asking right here is, all right, look, Lord, we've watched you, we've followed you, we've tried to obey you, but come on now, when are you going to get down to it? When are you going to crush the enemies and set up your throne? Listen, it's not that they're wrong that this is coming. Of course, there's coming a day when Christ will indeed sit on a throne and rule over everything. It's not that that expectation is wrong. It's that that expectation is incomplete. Yes, Christ will rule over the nations, but He will rule over the nations as a redeemer to the nations. And too often in the history of God's people, listen to me, because I really do feel like we can be guilty of this today. We live in a gotcha generation. We live in a cancel them out generation. We live in a day when religious engagement is often a blood sport where hostility and volatility so often mark and define what we do and how we interact with people. And I'm afraid that, frankly, sometimes we're a lot like the disciples in that what we really want God to do is get them, not redeem them. Jesus says to him, look, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. This is not the first time he's had to rebuke them for that. In Luke chapter 9, there's this awful passage of Scripture where the disciples ask Jesus if he wants them to call down thunder from heaven. Here's the story. Jesus is walking through Samaria, and the Samarians do not receive him as the king. They do not fall down and worship him, and it infuriates the disciples. It infuriates them so badly that they look at Jesus with their chest puffed out, with their anger boiling, and this is the question they ask Jesus. Do you want us to call down thunder and fire from heaven and have them consumed right now? That is often the disposition that we have when we think about the enemies of God. But listen to Jesus' response because this sets the paradigm for us. Jesus says, listen, this is such a rebuke. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You may think that's godly. You may think that that represents the Father. You may think that you're of my spirit, but Jesus says, you got this all backwards. This is not my spirit talking through you. This is satanic. Listen, the whole mindset where we long for the kingdom to come so that God will just crush people, that's not what Jesus is in the business of doing. Though, yes, he will sit on a throne. Jesus goes on to say, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. Listen to this. 
The Son of Man did not come to destroy men, but to save men. Look, our going, we are goers as witnesses to the coming King, who is, yes, a ruler, but who is also the Redeemer. And what we preach and what we proclaim is that this Christ will redeem you and this Christ will rule over all things. But those two things have to go hand in hand. And the disciples were often guilty of living in that gotcha moment where they just wanted to defeat the enemies. And they really didn't have on their radar or in their heart a spirit towards redeeming and redemption for their enemies. And yet this is precisely what God has called us to. Second thing I want you to see in the text. Not only do we go forward as witnesses to Christ, not as imperial activists, but secondly, we go forward in the power of the Spirit and not in our own power and strength. Listen, I I fear that so very, very much of what we do as servants of Christ, we do in our own power. I have to admit, I can't tell you how many... Gosh, who knows how many thousands of sermons I've, I've preached now in my ministry for 24 years. Praise God I've had the opportunity to do that. I fear, I fear that so many of them have been preached in my own power and in my own strength. How many of the jobs have I held that I've kind of gone through the motions and gotten caught up into the rhythms of ministry without really falling on my knees in desperation for God to show up with me in those moments? And I have the great privilege right now of having a job that's clearly so much bigger than me that it drives me to my knees. But now that it has driven me to my knees, and now that I seem to metaphorically live my life on the floor, so to speak, I remember back through 24 years of ministry, and I grieve over how often I stepped into these moments without first walking into those moments on my knees. What we have to do if this ministry that we're doing is to have any value for the people we engage and for the kingdom which we seek to establish is we have to rely on the power and the Spirit of God. And I know I'm talking about myself as a preacher, and you might be out there saying saying to yourself, well, I'm not a preacher, so how does this apply to me? Listen, you're still called as one by God to go forward and to advance His kingdom. And as you do that, whether you're a Sunday school teacher for little children, an usher who takes up offerings, a deacon who serves plates, a a worker that goes out to work with the homeless, or anyone else within the body of Christ, we must do what we do leaning on and depending on the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus says this in verse number 8, but you will receive power when? Not when you've been properly trained. You will receive power not when you've practiced it enough times. I have to admit, there's a rhythm to all of this stuff that you get quite comfortable with. You get sort of good at. I remember, for example, when I was pastoring in North Carolina, a little church for about eight and a half years, I was a pastor there. I can remember we had this one group of people that planned out a service about a year in advance. I mean, they started meeting as a committee a year in advance, and they would plan out every detail. And I remember they would give me the request or the invitation for me to pray in that service at least 10 months in advance. And they did this year after year after year. And I kind of thought it was funny because, number one, they were so far out ahead of it than almost anybody else would have ever been. And that, number two, they were asking me to do something, if I can shoot straight with you, that seemed rather menial. 
I mean, pray in the service. You know how many thousands of times I've done that at this point? I don't really need a heads up on that. And I finally looked at this one fellow and I said, listen, you don't necessarily have to keep asking me again and again this far in advance. You could walk into my house. Please don't. But you could walk into my house at 3 o'clock in the morning, wake me up and say, would you lead us in prayer? And I could do it. And it's true. I could have done it. And the moment I said it, something pricked my heart. That how ordinary and how accustomed we get to the regular flow of all of this that we just go through the motions and we don't pull back and retreat and fall on our knees and beg God to show up with us. No wonder there's no power in what we do. Jesus says you receive power not when you've been properly trained, not when you've done it a whole bunch of times. You receive power when the Holy Spirit has fallen upon you. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is where the fruit comes from. Jesus said this. This is, again, one of those paradigmatic verses of Scripture for me. I quote it often because it's so important to me, at least. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15. And brothers and sisters, we either believe that or we don't. We go forth in the power of the Spirit not in our own strength or our own power, number two. Number three, we go forward to spread the gospel both near and far. In other words, our going is not just for the sake of going. Our going is to preach. Our going is to proclaim. Our going is to make Christ known where He's currently not. Our going is to go into the darkest places in this world. And there in those dark places shine the light of Christ. Our going is to go into those places where oppression is thick and strong. And there offer the hope of Jesus Christ. Our going is both local and foreign. Our going is in all things. Missiologists often point to verse 8 as a bit of a, a plan or a strategy. And I think rightly so. You shall receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And as a result of that, listen to this. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, super local. That's where they are. In Judea, the outer hemisphere of that space. In Samaria, just a bit off from there. And then to the ends of the earth. In other words, the idea is that it is our job. Let me say that again. The idea here is not just it's the preacher's job or the missionary's job. No, it is the body of Christ's job. It is the people of God's job to go and to make disciples and to be witnesses to Christ our King, both local, regional, and foreign. We go. And so therefore, the ministries that we do in this city really do matter. You know, I said this to you two weeks ago, and you might have thought that I'm just saying nice things as the new guy when I stand here. No, that's not how I roll. I won't say it to you unless I mean it. I mean it. You First Baptist, are a strategic church for this city. And this city is a strategic city for this country. You, First Baptist, must be strong. You, First Baptist, must be engaged. And I'm proud of you because you are. One of the things I see when I look at you is a church that though you have facilities like this and programs that are awesome for our children and for other things, you're also a church that's rolled up your sleeves and getting out there in the city and getting dirty for Christ. 
This is precisely the kind of thing that Jesus has in mind in this instruction, that we would be going into this very city and ministering in his name as witnesses to him as the Redeemer and as the ruler, to proclaim him both locally, but then to proclaim him abroad as well. This is a strategic thing for the advancement of the kingdom. And First Baptist, you have a tremendous opportunity to do that. You've already built so much. You've already done so much. God has already used you in so many different ways. Now is the time to lift up your eyes and go again. This is not the time to disengage. This is not the time to pull back. This is not the time to be discouraged because things don't move as fast as maybe you would like them to be. This is the time to roll up your sleeves even more and jump in. This is the time to invite people to come back. Tell you what, as long as I'm here, I'll invite people. This is a fantastic place and God's doing wonderful things. This is strategic for you as the body of Christ to understand that where you sit and what you do, how it fits into the instruction of Jesus. The opportunity here is enormous. And then what you do next is vital. Jesus calls us, First Baptist, to spread the gospel both near and far. Jesus himself would instruct, as you well know, this very thing, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And you want God to be with you? This is the context where he says he will. And lo, I am with you always. That's the business of a goer. That's the business of a follower of Jesus Christ. One more point. Fourthly and finally, we go in the assurance of Jesus' resurrection and His return. We go with the assurance of His resurrection and His return. Let me ask an honest question to you. There are these moments in your life when you think about Christianity and all this stuff we teach and preach about Jesus and God. You ever have any of those moments where you think to yourself, this is too good to be true. <laughs> this couldn't possibly be right. I mean, this story about a God who's created everything, we've never seen Him or touched Him or anything like that, but there's this God there and Jesus loves us and there's a kingdom coming. That's a very natural question for someone to ask. I mean, you think about it for a moment, it's, it's kind of something we all will go through to some degree or another at certain times. I'm not saying we all will live there, but at times that question gets asked. What do we say to that? How do we respond to that question. I've spent most of my life answering questions like that, or at least pursuing the answer to questions like that. I love Acts chapter 1. Notice in Acts chapter 1, it all starts back in verse 3. And to those that he presented himself alive, listen to this, he presented himself alive after his suffering he presented himself alive by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In other words, what, what Luke wants you to see here at the very, very beginning is as Jesus is once again going to instruct his disciples on what he expects them to be doing, Luke reminds them that this is grounded in something. Our faith is rooted in something. There's something real there's something tangible and there's something enormously important that happens. Listen, 
We have a world where billions and billions of people have lived and died. And never, never do we see these people come back from the grave. Never do we see people dead for three days and come back. And yet, that is exactly what the Gospels tell us happened. And critics and skeptics and agnostics and atheists and all sorts of other people have thrown the very best they can at that claim. And yet for 2,000 years, this has been a claim that stands up not just spiritually in the lives of the beloved, but it stands up historically and factually within the evidence itself. And therefore, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Here's, what you, here's where the rubber meets the road for all of us. What that means for you and what that means for me is that our faith is not just some wishful think. Our faith is not just some hope that we have untethered to anything real in this world. No, 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 no. Our faith is rooted and grounded in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and His bodily appearances. And Luke reminds us of these things here. So in other words, what this does is it bolsters us. It empowers us. It compels us. If this is true, then the message of Jesus Christ must be proclaimed. Jesus shows up to them and reminds them, hey, here I am. But it's not, that's not all. Our going is not just going in the assurance of the resurrection of Jesus. But here it is, listen to me. Our going is a going with the assurance of His return. It's been a long time, hasn't it? It's 2,000 years. Might be inclined for the body of Christ to grow weary. Might be inclined for the body of Christ to lose faith. Might be inclined for the body of Christ to cry out, How long, O Lord, shall you wait? Remember this. This is not the first time in the history of God's people where there has been a season, an era of time when heaven seemed to be silent. You remember for the children of Israel? In the book of Genesis, they're starving. There's a famine that has come. And God providentially works through Joseph to bring God's people down into Israel. And it's a provision and it's a good thing and the people of God are grateful but you remember the story. The Pharaoh dies, and now there's a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph. And the situation of God's people drastically changes for hundreds of years. This is the point I want to make. For hundreds of years, heaven seemed silent. Nothing eschatological was happening. The unfolding of God's kingdom seemed as though for a moment to be on pause. And the people grew weary. One of the most beautiful parts of the book of Exodus to me in the early chapters there, it's not the, not the cool stuff we tend to look at, like the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, that's all phenomenal. That's all wonderful. Yes, we see God showing up for His people and providing for them. All that is wonderful and spectacular. No, the beautiful part of the book of Exodus is right there at the very beginning when the Bible says that God heard the cry of His people. Listen to me. And He remembered his promises to Abraham. God heard and he remembered and then God acted. And what seemed to be sort of a, a derailing of God's kingdom outflow, now all of a sudden we see that knowing God's providence, the kingdom is still afoot. This was not the only other time there had been sort of radio silence from heaven. You remember the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. 
400 years go by and heaven is silent during these times. Listen, both in the Exodus and also at the end of Malachi to Matthew. Listen to me. There are whole generations of people that are born, they live, and they die, and they never see Christ's kingdom come. 400 years again, generation after generation born and never see it. And yet the Bible tells us, Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4, that in the fullness of time, God brought forth His Son, born of a woman. What am I telling you? I'm telling you, don't go weary. Our God has not forgotten. And therefore, as you go, you proclaim the coming of our King. You proclaim a kingdom that is to come. And as we talked about last time, we now are ambassadors for Christ. We go forward now announcing the coming of our King. And so we go forward with the assurance, not just of the resurrection of Jesus, but also the return of Jesus. The angels, the two men look at him and say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? Why are you stuck here and why are you not moving? Why are you gazing and not going? He gave you instructions, did he not? See to it. Get after it. Get up. Go. It is time. And that, my beloved church, that's what I'd say to us now. Now is the time more than ever to roll up your sleeves. Now is the time more than ever to pick up the rope and pull. Now is the time more than ever for you, the individual members of this body, to labor for the cause of Christ in this city and in this church. For the coming of our Lord is near. Let me ask you some questions here this morning as we close. Number one, do you want God to defeat your enemies or to redeem your enemies? Be honest with yourself before God. There are people for all of us that are hard. There are people for all of us that do awful things. And it will always be your disposition to want the worst for them. That will always be antithetical to the Christ that we serve. Do you want God to defeat your enemies for you or do you want God to redeem them? When you pray about the hardship with that person or those people, do you pray this way? God, I pray that you'd make them stop. God, I pray that you'd teach them a lesson. God, I pray that you'd take them out of this situation. Do, are you praying take them out prayers? Are you praying the way Jesus taught us to pray? Love your enemies and pray for them. God, would you work in their life in such a way that you could pour your blessings out upon them? Is that our prayer? Do we want God to defeat our enemies or do we want, him, want God to redeem our enemies? You know the right thing. Do we rely on the Spirit of God in the work of our ministry? Or do we rely on our own abilities? Church, I'm telling you right now, if this body of Christ would fall on its face Independent, in repentance and then dependence on God to show up with us in every single morsel of our ministry for Christ. I'm telling you, the past will have nothing on the future. God will show up and with us in those moments and His power will be like never before. 
But it takes collectively the body of Christ doing precisely that. Calling on God, relying on God. Even in the things that you're inclined to think, I got this. May we be a people that depend. Thirdly, are you involved in the spread of the gospel? Look, just let me ask that question here. There's wonderful, fantastic ministries pouring out of this church. Are you a part of them? Are you a goer? Listen, remember, I'm not, I'm not asking you about your vocation. I understand. In this room, in this body, there's an impressive sea of vocations. There's bankers. There's doctors. There's lawyers. There's all sorts of really talented and, and prestigious things. I'm not, not asking about vocations here. Brother, sister in Christ, you who claim to follow Him, are you following? Are you going where Christ would go? Because that is indeed what a follower is. Are you involved in the spread of the gospel? Do you preach and proclaim? Do you share Christ with your neighbor? Do you have that one or two or three or five or twenty that you seek to witness to and to share of the love of Jesus Christ? Are you involved in the work of ministry and the gospel? And last of all, do you have confidence in the power of the resurrection? Do you have confidence in the return of Jesus Christ himself? It's, we're prone to wonder. We're prone to ask those questions. What I'm trying to say to you today is you bring your mind back. As Paul tells us, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? In real terms, it means we harness that thought and we come back to the truth. And we let that truth take root again and bolster us for the Lord. What does it mean to be a follower? A follower goes where Jesus goes. A follower does what Jesus does. A follower loves what Jesus loves. My hope, my prayer, my vision for this church through this season is that we would become that. People who go where He goes, does what He does, and loves what He loves. But that cannot happen without every individual member of the body throwing themselves at that task. Father, help us to do precisely that. Help us, Father, to be obedient to you in the big and in the small. <clears throat> help us, Father, to look at our lives for what you call us to be, goers. To think about our lives that way and to take action accordingly. Help us to be a people that seek the redemption of those who despise us. Help us to seek the redemption of those who harmfully use us. God, help us to depend on you in every moment. Teach us, Father, how to do that. Stop us, pause us in those moments when we are quick to jump in without you. And Father, would you help us to go with a mind to spread the gospel both here in New Orleans, but also everywhere else that you would take us. Help us to do all of this, Father, remembering that that tomb is empty and that you shall come again. Help us, Father, this day to be faithful to you. Would you accomplish in and through us what you seek to accomplish? In Jesus' name.